Well, we are continuing our study through the book of First Thessalonians, and within this book we've come to a section in which the Apostle Paul is defending the manner in which he came to the Thessalonians. And within that defense, we see really what true ministry should look like. And when I say ministry, I say ministry of the Word. What should the ministry of the Word look like in the body of Christ? We have a wonderful example. And as we look at our passage today, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul uh, modeled what genuine biblical ministry should look like by, a, by imparting the Word of God and also imparting his life, as we'll see, from right and proper motives. So with that in mind, would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, and we're going to be looking in chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. And I want to just give a brief overview of the context. The Apostle Paul is writing to believers in Thessalonica, uh, they are those in which he has come with uh, Silas and Timothy from, at, uh, from the Lord's uh, command to go over to preach the word. After having been in Philippi and uh, being suffering and mistreated there, they came to Thessalonica and they preached the word of God. They preached the gospel. And the Thessalonians responded. They responded uh, to the powerfully convicting gospel uh, by the Spirit's strength, as we see in chapter 1. And they turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son uh, from heaven who delivers us from the wrath to come. And within that, the Apostle Paul was there for about three weeks in Thessalonica, and then they were chased out of there also. And so having left there, uh, we see that Paul uh, went on to Athens, and in Athens he was concerned about the Thessalonian church. He was concerned they might be tempted uh, by Satan in the midst of their persecutions, and even in, in terms of their view towards the Apostle Paul and his companions, chapter 2 and 3. And so he sent Timothy back to strengthen and encourage them as to their faith. And then Timothy returned to Paul after he had gone to Corinth, and in Corinth he received this uh, report about how the church was doing. And within that, uh, we see this letter was generated from Paul's response to what Timothy had brought forth. And it's important to note that this church is only a few months old, uh, not more than a year, uh, probably less than a year. Uh, the Apostle Paul had only been with them three or so weeks, uh, sharing the Word of God, and they had truly responded and truly been saved. So with that in mind, let's take a look at what biblical uh, ministry looks like. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and again, as I mentioned last week, this portion is a portion of a larger portion of Scripture. It really goes all the way through to verse 12 and 13, actually, maybe even farther. The overall uh, intent, I believe, is the first three chapters where the Apostle Paul is defending the ministry in a, in a, in a general sense. But here, we're just going to read back a little bit what we've seen already and read a little bit past what we'll do today for the context. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from impurity or error, or from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. And now our passage. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, 
nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though, as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our own authority. But we proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. <coughs> Excuse me. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaimed the gospel to you, the gospel of God. And then I want to read past that, what we'll see next week, Lord willing. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would (coughs) children, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of, of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And then he goes on to say, for this reason, we give thanks And how they received the word is God's word and not the word of men. That word that does its work in us. With that in mind, uh, you might remember that what we saw in these chapters, in the first chapter, was the testimony of these Thessalonians. The testimony of the gospel had come with full conviction, and they had responded, turning to God from idols. (coughs) And within that... We saw last week in chapter 2 that Paul begins to defend himself in light of the manner in which they came to the Thessalonians, the manner in which they came to them. Now, why would Paul need to defend himself? And I shared a bunch of passages last week, so you can go back and look at that. But he says, as you know, as you know, God is witness. He's explaining. He's explaining, defending himself. Why would he need to do that? So why would he need to do that? Why would he need to defend himself? Well, evidently, as we saw last week, and you can get the message, I went in depth in talking about what uh, bad guys and false teachers and false apostles and, and those who are really servants of Satan do. We see that in Second Corinthians, that they stir up uh, slander and suspicion towards those who are truly bringing forth the word to try to turn people away from them and thus the word in which they had brought forth. We see that in 2 Corinthians, especially in chapter 11. Now, it's pretty clear that these bad guys were um, making false accusations concerning the Apostle Paul. Indeed, in chapter 3, he would, when he received the message from Timothy, he was thankful that they still uh, loved him and they wanted, desired to see him. They hadn't been turned, in a sense, in that, that way. And then we see that also there certainly was uh, probably... From looking from the backside here, the accusations that maybe Paul was a flatterer, that maybe he was in it for the money, that maybe he was in it for the glory as an apostle. Um, we see that in later on as he defends himself. Look down at verse 5, and we'll look at this today. He says, For we never came with flattering speech, as you know. Well, why would he say that? Unless possibly someone was saying Paul's a flatterer, right? Certainly. And he goes on, he says, as you know, not with a pretext, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from among men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. 
Look down a little farther, verse 10 says, You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behaved towards you. Evidently, there were those possibly laying accusations that Paul didn't do things right. He's in it for the money. He's in it just to, to get popularity. He's elevating himself as the great apostle, whatever it might be. And so the apostle Paul needs to, inspired by the Spirit, defend himself. And how tragic that is that men and even women creep into the church, uh, gossips and slanderers, turning the hearts of true believers away from those who genuinely fed them the word of the Lord, who are feeding them the truth of God. And I mentioned this last time, nothing's new, right? The slave is not greater than his master. Uh, what did they say of Jesus? Matthew 11:19. He was a gluttonous man, a drunkard, and a friend of tax gatherers and sinners. Same thing, slander to get people to turn away from the Lord himself. But how painful this must have been, because as we'll see, the Apostle Paul loved them dearly. And uh, it's painful when spiritual enemies breed suspicion, distrust, whatever it might be. And he loved the Thessalonians, and it's evident, as we'll see today. So then he begins his inspired defense, which is a blessing for us because then we see the genuine realities of what the motives should be for those who share the word of God. Now, you might remember last week we saw that in terms of biblical ministry of the word, that the word is imparted from the right motives. There are motives that you can't see, but they're manifest in actions that you can see. And that's going to be a theme throughout our passage here. Uh, notice uh, here the Apostle Paul in his defense reminds them, as we saw last week, how he imparted the word of God. He did it boldly amid opposition with pure and proper motives. First one on this review, what we saw last week. He says, for you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. It wasn't in vain. Uh, it wasn't empty. You know what God did through our coming as we shared the word of God and you turned to him and you were saved. That's the first part. And then he goes on. He says, he says uh, but after, verse 2, we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi. As you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Remember, we suffered in Philippi. We came here. We were speaking the word amid much opposition. And we had the boldness, not in ourselves, but in our God to speak the word of God to you. They boldly, in the midst of that, spoke the word of God. It's a boldness that comes from a fear of God and a lack of fear of men. It comes from a total dependence on him. We see throughout Scripture God's servants, like we see in Ephesians 5 or 6, 18, praying that God would bring about that boldness that you should speak, Paul would say, as he ought to speak. Uh, chapter 4 of Acts, uh, the disciples desiring to speak boldly uh, God's word and God, uh, going to God for that ability and God providing that. And so then we see that they had a freedom that came from a lack of fear of men, but a proper fear of God. And then they obeyed and spoke the word of God as God led them. Not just a boldness to preach to God anywhere and everywhere, but where the Lord had directed them to preach the gospel in Macedonia. And so in, midst of, in the midst of much opposition, the Thessalonians could see that. They could understand that. They preached boldly the gospel of God. They shared 
the saving truth concerning Jesus Christ. The saving truth. God the Son who took on human flesh, who died for our sins. You see, we're all sinners. And God will judge us for our sins. We are under His wrath right now, apart from Jesus. But yet, when you turn to Jesus Christ, uh, the God who died for your sins, bore our sins in His body on the cross and rose from the dead, when you turn to Him for salvation, you receive the forgiveness of sins. And so he boldly brought forth the gospel. And he's saying, hey, you guys know it. You guys know it that he did. Now within that, he begins to then share, as we saw, and this is a wonderful portion, the motives in which they brought forth. The things that you can't see, but God sees, but then he gives us understanding through his word. Verse 3, For our exhortation does not come from, or originate from, as we saw, error, that's not uh, a making a mistake. That's actually a twisted reality. It's something that's twisted. Or a impurity. That's a, a moral wickedness. Or by way of deceit. The word speaks of bait. Uh, baiting a fish. We weren't trying to deceive you when we brought the word to you. But just as, you notice in contrast, we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. You see, he didn't attach any evil motives to the presentation of the gospel. It didn't come by way of error or impurity or deceit. Uh, he didn't do any of that like the bad guys would do. And notice we have a tremendous contrast. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. I mean, I could spend the rest of the time on this. This is such a wonderful portion, and you can listen back to what we shared last week. But it's a tremendous passage. They understood they had been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. God tests his servants, and he tests them for the purpose of approving them. And then they are entrusted with a a stewardship of the gospel. Paul tells Timothy years later in 1 Timothy 1.12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. And so we have the Apostle Paul understanding that they had been approved by God. They had passed the test. And I mentioned last week, so many people preaching and teaching who haven't passed the test, who haven't been walking faithfully with the Lord Jesus Christ. So many people who want to just do what preachers do or, or, or whatever it might be. It's a career, but they haven't passed the test in terms of the character that God has to have in those who bring forth his word and serve him in every other way. And they said, we've been approved by God to be entrusted, a stewardship of the gospel. We see that in 1 Corinthians 4, that stewards, it is required that one be found trustworthy. It's required, or faithful even, as a good translation. So then, they were entrusted with the gospel. They were stewards of the most glorious uh, truth in the universe, the gospel of God. The truth that reveals God's love for man and the sacrifice and death through his son, Jesus Christ. And they were stewards of that. And the gospel goes way beyond that too, by the way. It expands so far. The simplicity of the gospel, but yet even like we see in the book of Romans, the gospel explained in detail, which affects every element of our lives from now to eternity. 
They were God's stewards. They were entrusted. That was their ultimate motivation. We see here, notice, or notice, notice their motiva- ultimate motivation. So we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. This is so important because this should be for everything we do, not just those who speak the word of God. This should be the motivation for everything we do for the Lord. Thus we speak continually, habitually, because we've been improved, we've been entrusted. Thus we speak. And how do we do so? Not as pleasing men, but God. This should be driving everything we do, especially in ministry. Our motive should be to please God and not uh, please men or not for the favor of men. You see, man-pleasing is a symptom of our old life before we came to Christ. And if we do so, we must toss it. We must die to it. We must confess it. You cannot serve God and please men. The Apostle Paul shares in Galatians 1.10, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I was still striving, because that's what he did when he was a Pharisee, still striving to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. You can't serve Christ and please men. There's no way I can serve the Lord preaching to you and look for your approval. It kills it immediately. You can't do it. You can't do it. We need to see this right away. And it will destroy ministry. It will destroy your relationship. It will destroy everything. The fear of man brings a snare. Now, when we fear the Lord in contrast and want to please him, then we're going to be doing what is right for those around us. You see, our desire should be to please the Lord. And we need to be reminded or we wouldn't be taught on it, would we? I need to be reminded. I need to be reminded. Remember we saw in Ephesians chapter 5 that we were to try to learn what was pleasing to the Lord. Trying to learn what's pleasing. I want to learn from his word, from his character, from what he shares about what is pleasing. What is pleasing. We know from Hebrews chapter 11 that it's impossible to please God apart from faith. So I can't please him if I'm not trusting him, right? That's an element in there. It's not just simply, oh, God wants this, so I'm going to go do it. No, it's God's desires this, and by faith I step out and trust him as I do it, and that pleases him. Enoch, by faith, walked with the Lord, and the Lord took him. He took him. So Paul made it his ambition to be pleasing. But there was also one more element in that. He understood that everything we do on this earth, in the body, there's going to be a judgment for it. Not a judgment for sin, in a sense, where sins are covered. We're not judged for that. But a judgment that will bring about either the loss of eternal rewards or the gain of those. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And this motivated Paul to be obedient, to please the Lord. He's talking about, in chapter 5, the fact that he might die in, in the ministry, you know, and to be absent from the body, present with the Lord. You know, I know the Lord's not going to leave me unclothed. I've got a body coming, a glorified body. That's coming. He, he's explaining that. And within that, he says something. In light of the possibility of dying serving Christ, he says in verse 6 of chapter 5 of Second Corinthians, therefore always being of good courage. Boy, uh, shouldn't we be that way? Always being of good courage. Hey, if you know the truth and you know the God of the truth, you can always be of good courage. 
you start to take and renew your mind and see the circumstances that are coming towards you through God's perspective, you can be of good courage. If you begin to see them from your own perspective, selfish perspective, by the way, we all understand that, then you will not be of good courage. And so he says, therefore, and Paul is a man, a human being just like us, saved by the grace of God. Therefore, always being of good courage and knowing that while we were at home in the body, we were absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage. And I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body to be home with the Lord. Hey, that's much better. Therefore, we have this ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. That's the ambition. And notice what he says. He's going to explain for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And God is not so unjust to reward you for your faithfulness. We see that in the book of Hebrews. He's going to reward you for what you did in him. And somehow it's tied in to giving him glory forever and ever. And I don't understand that, but praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So then... Paul had it has ambition to please the Lord. So we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. God is the one who sees our hearts. God is the one who sees them. He examines. His opinion is the only one that truly matters. We see that in 1 Corinthians 4. The Apostle Paul said that very clearly. He said, verse 3, But it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. You see, when you're really concerned about what the Lord thinks, then your own examination really isn't that important, because you're doing way beyond that. Yes, we need to examine ourselves. We see that in other places, but that's in the context of having the Lord examine us, opening our hearts to see ourselves rightly and being careful and concerned about what he thinks not what we think and so then he made it his ambition to please and so he says so we speak not as pleasing um man but god who examines our hearts we need to learn that for ministry in every element of what we do if you are a people pleaser you are living the way you lived before you came to christ you have not put that off put it off confess it and we're tempted believe me you can have the greatest desire to walk with the lord and put it off and you know it and then all of a sudden the situation arises and oh right put it off don't please men but please god so with that in mind we come to where we left off last week and at this point we're going to see the 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 motives here as they spoke uh from a negative standpoint these are the positive motives hey we speak pleasing God, not men. But now we're going to see what they didn't bring the word, the manner in which they didn't bring it forth. So in our passage, let's take a look as we begin here. Notice what he says in verse 5. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know. We came the right way, pleasing God and not men. We were approved by God to be entrusted. And he goes on to explain, God examines our hearts, for we never did this. We never came in the context of bringing the word to them, that's the context, with flattering speech, as you know. You know it, Thessalonians. You know it. Well, what is flattering speech? 
Well, it's, it's literally here flattering words, words. Well, what is flattery? Flattery is speech that consists of insincere and possibly excessive praise. And it is done to gain advantage. It's done to gain advantage. One dictionary says it is the act of giving excessive compliments generally for the purpose of ingratiating oneself with the subject. You say, what's the ingratiate? I don't know if I pronounced that correctly. It is the idea of intending to gain approval or favor. Or favor. Now, folks, flattery is not simply a compliment or praise. Later on, it's going to say in chapter 5, Paul's going to say, hey, you need to hold those who give you the word and instruct you super abundantly high and appreciate them. That's not flattery. Flattery is a wicked motive by praising someone for something that's maybe true or maybe not or whatever it might be. It may be elevated to gain advantage of them. That's what flattery is. It's to gain advantage. And folks, boy, have I experienced that. I mean, there are those who have praised the Lord and generally thanked me for the word and praised the Lord. There's nothing wrong with that. But there were those who did so in a manner to try and gain spiritual advantage from me, but also from others. They would praise me because I'm teaching you, as we'll see, those in authority like Paul or like someone who's teaching, you know, they have an elevated platform. And so they would praise me to gain advantage spiritually with other people who respected the teaching. I've seen that. I've seen that. Flattery is speech that is intended to deceitfully disarm and gain advantage over someone. And it's very wicked. And Scripture reveals it very clearly as that. Let's take a look at a couple passages. Turn to Proverbs chapter 29. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 5. A man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. That's pretty clear, isn't it? And what about uh, Psalm 5? Turn to Psalm 5. And this is a psalm that the context is quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 3 in his conclusion about the evil uh, wickedness of mankind and under God's wrath in need of salvation. The unrighteousness of men. It's right in the same context, and you'll notice that. Psalm 5. Actually, let's, let's go to Psalm 12 first. Go to Psalm 12 first, and then we'll go to Psalm 5. Psalm 12 here, uh, David speaks of the godless and faithless man who use falsehood and disingenuous deceptive speech. Psalm 12, verse 1. For the choir director upon an eight-string lyre, a psalm of David, help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be. For the faithless disappear from among the sons of men. They speak falsehood to one another. And look at this. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. Flattery is an evidence of not being redeemed, of not being redeemed. Now, we can do things that we did when we weren't redeemed, can't we? We sure can, right? But he says, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips. Now go to Psalm 5, Psalm 5. And again, this is a a portion within the quote that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 3 concerning the unrighteousness of men and God's wrath upon them. Thus, Psalm 5, verse 9. There is nothing reliable in what they say. 
Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. You might remember that quote in Romans chapter 3. But notice what he says next. They flatter with their tongue. They flatter with their tongue. Turn to Proverbs chapter 26. You see, at the core of flattery is actually a hate and a deceit, which brings ruin, by the way. It's not a good thing. It's very evil, by the way. It's very evil. And it's very subtle at times, and it's deceptive. It's used to deceive, by the way. And Paul says, we never came that way. We never flattered you. We didn't share the word of God in the context of flattery. Proverbs 26, verse 24. And look at this. We need to have the word of God. You know, we look at people, we think, oh, yes, I know them. Well, do we really? We need to take God's perspective. When we see the external evidences of what God says, then we need to say, wow, I've got to be careful. Notice what he says here. Proverbs 26, 24. He who hates disguises it with his lips, but he lays up deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, do not believe him, for there are seven abominations in his heart. Though hatred, though his hatred covers itself with guile, he's faking it, right? His wickedness will be revealed before the assembly. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and he who rolls a stone, it will come back on him. A lying tongue hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth works or worketh ruin. It's evil. It's evil. And folks, it's a symptom of false teachers. False, it's, a, it's, a, it's a characteristic of false teachers, by the way. Turn to Jude right before Revelation. There should no be, never be any flattery in ministry. If you are being flattered by your shepherds, get out of there. Get out of there. They are to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. They're to be gracious and kind and gracious lips and edify and build up. But flattery, absolutely not. Jude, verse 16, speaking of the bad guys, on their way to hell, pits ready for them. They are grumblers, finding fault. By the way, you'll see that around a church when that's going on, by the way. When there's flattery and flatterers, then you'll see this stuff going on too. Following after their own lust, they speak arrogantly, and look at this, flattering people for the sake of gaining advantage. Flattering people for the sake of gaining advantage. MO of false teachers. Turn to Romans chapter 16. The Apostle Paul is, is giving his final greetings at the end of Romans. And in the middle of it, he stops. Inspired by the Spirit. And he gives a warning to the body of Christ for all of us to look out for. And it involves flattery. Romans chapter 16. Verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, that's everybody, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching. Now, good, solid teaching may cause a dissension, by the way. He's saying, you know, if you have solid teaching, someone doesn't, there's going to be a division, right? But if you have wrong teaching, if the things that are being said are wrong and they cause divisions, keep your eyes out. Notice what he says here. Contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. Turn away from them. And what does he say here? For such men are not slaves of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And look at this. 
And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Don't be unsuspecting. We've seen that here, folks. Believe me, we've seen it. Notice what he says. But it's, it's Satan and God's going to crush him. For the report of your obedience has reached all. Therefore, I'm rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Turn away from that stuff, right? And the God of peace will soon crush, crush Satan under your feet. That's who's behind it. The grace of our Lord be with you. So then, brothers and sisters, stay away from people who flatter you spiritually. Stay away. Stay away. Uh, the Bible, back in we saw in Proverbs, don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. Stay away. Stay away from people who flatter you to gain advantage. Obviously, that's what it is. Who butter you up to ultimately pull you away to focusing maybe on their spirituality rather than the Lord. And it makes me sick to see it, and I've seen it, and it breaks my heart when people fall for it. The naive and the disobedient who have not heeded the warnings of Scripture and are now suffering. But Paul didn't come that way. He didn't come that way. For we never, back in 1 Thessalonians 2, we never came with flattering speech, as you know. We didn't do that. We didn't do that. As you know, as you know, when we brought the word of God to you, we didn't flatter you. We didn't flatter you. Now notice, not only did they not flatter, but they never spoke the word as a cloak for, for covetousness, as God is witness. Now, they could spot if they flattered or not, but this one, God would have to be the witness. It's an internal reality, but God is saying through Paul, or Paul saying, inspired by the Lord, they didn't do this. Look at verse um, 5 again. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. The term pretext here speaks of making something appear a certain way to hide what is really going on. It's translated cloak in a sense. It's falsehood. It's a covering for evil. And this word is used by the Lord. We see, you know, often we see it in the religious leaders who would cloak themselves in religiousness for their wickedness. Look at Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. And the Lord had to warn people because they looked so religious. But it was a cloak. It was a cloak for greed and wickedness and self-elevation, as we will see. Luke chapter 20, verse 46. Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, who love respectful greetings in the marketplace and the chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows. They take their money, by the way. Who devour widows' houses. And here it is. Here's our word. Same exact word for pretense. For appearance sake... Offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And Luke, uh, we see Luke chapter 20, this. And later on, we're going to see greed. That's greed. That's what's the motive behind it. Actually, look back in our passage in 1 Thessalonians. Paul said, we never came to you sharing the word as a cover, as a cloak. We didn't come sharing the word of God to you as a cloak for something. Well, what was that? He says, as a pretext for greed. Now, some of your passages might say covetousness. But this word speaks of an evil disposition desiring simply to have more than one share. It's greed. 
When you want more than you should have, that's great. Now, people don't, people can redefine what they should have, obviously, in greedy sense, right? It's great. Now go to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. And in this passage, we don't have time to read it, but basically after he shares this portion, he's then going to give a parable about the rich man who's got all this stuff and he's building more barns. I've got to make more barns. And God says, you fool. You know, your, your, your life is required tonight, and what will you do with all this stuff? He was greedy. He was focused on the stuff of this life rather than the Lord. Luke chapter 12, verse 15. And he said to them, Beware and on your guard against every form of greed. That's the word. For not even what one has an abundance does life consist of his possessions. His possessions. The Apostle Paul did not come speaking the word as a cloak for greed. And there are people within the body of Christ who do that. We see in chapter 2 of of, uh, 2 Peter that this is the M.O. of false teachers. Turn there. Their M.O. is greed. Their M.O. is greed. One element of it. 2 Peter 2, 13. And it's interesting. The bad guys always accuse the good guys of doing what they're doing, right? (laughs) Sounds familiar, doesn't it? We see that in in the news these days, right? 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. They are stains and blemishes, speaking of the false guys, reviling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. They're hanging out with you, but they're underneath. It's all for them. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. They're acting like they're godly people, by the way, but that's not what's really going on. Enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed. Heart trained in greed. That's the MO of false teachers. And not only are there false teachers who are greedy, there are those who bring forth the word with the wrong motives at times. But it may be actually accurate. And they bring it forth in the wrong motives, but they bring it forth for money out of greed. Paul said, We never did that. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.17, For we are not like the many peddling the word of god we didn't peddle it to make a buck off you some people may even do it slightly accurately it always come out wrong usually but to peddle it to gain a buck we didn't do it for the money we're not like the many but he says but as from sincerity but as from god we speak in christ in the sight of god second corinthians two seventeen. there are those who are hirelings paul says we weren't like that We weren't like that. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. And then he calls upon God as witness. Back in our passage, God as witness. We didn't do that. We weren't in it for the money. Biblical ministry of the word does not flatter. Biblical ministry of the word does not not enter into it for the money. If you're thinking, hmm, what kind of career should I have? Hmm, I'll be a pastor. That's the wrong motive. It's the wrong motive. It's not it for the money. Doesn't flatter. Doesn't use the word as a as a pretext or a cloak to gain money off people. This should be instructive. 
If you're in a church with a pastor or an unofficial pastor, unofficial spiritual leaders, official and unofficial, there are people who rise up and lead spiritually, by the way. They may be unofficial. And they flatter you spiritually. Get out or get away from them. These people are most likely using a covering for their greed, whether it's financial or, as we've seen, to elevate themselves, which is what we'll see in a minute, to, to elevate or glorify themselves spiritually in the eyes of people. So then ministers of the word should never, ever, and never should flatter. Paul said, we never did. We never came as a pretext for greed. Because they had been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so they speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines their hearts. Very aware of God's examination. We, we please God, we seek to please him, for we understand the fear of the Lord and his judgment and his rewards. Now, not only do biblical ministries do things from the right motives, um, but we see here in the list of wrong motives, notice uh, in terms of this passage, he's going to move from the motives in imparting the word to the motives to imparting his life. Look at verse uh, 5, verse 6, I mean. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her children. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. You see, in defense of their ministry, the apostle Paul reveals their uh, biblical motives as evidenced by their actions of what they didn't do and what they did do. Notice he starts again by what they didn't do. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, verse 6, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted, asserted our own authority, but we proved to be gentle among you. He's continuing the list of the things they did not do when imparting the word and, as we'll see, imparting their lives. We didn't seek glory. We didn't seek to be elevated in the sense to be glorified by men, glory from men, either from you Thessalonians or from anyone else. There are people in ministry for the money and there are people in ministry for the glory and there are people in ministry for both. Paul didn't do that. Paul and his companions sought to please God, not men. They wanted God to be glorified and not them. There are those who rob the, the sheep's money and then they rob God of his glory. He says, nor were we literally seekers from men of glory. What kind of glory would that be? It's elevation spiritually, obviously, in the context. It's what it is. Either from you or from others. And notice what he says. He says something very interesting. Even though, as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. And that's kind of a little confusing there. Because I think you could, the literal translation is a little, a little better here. Being able or having the power in weight as apostles of Christ. He's saying from our position as apostles, we could erode on that to get glory from you. You see... Those who have a position, when someone teaches you the word of God, there's a respect. And if they have bad, evil motives, they could use that, as Paul's saying, we didn't do it, 
to gain glory from men. Even as apostles, he says here, uh, even as apostles, this, this sense, we didn't seek that. We didn't seek that. We could have been able in our weight as apostles to seek glory from you. We could have subtly changed things and sought your glory from men. He says, we did not do that. We did not do that. And folks, we need to be guarded from that. Those who would use uh, people to gain glory, their position, whatever it might be. We've had people here who would flatter me to other people to gain spiritual advantage on them based on my position. Because they love the word, so they would use that as a, as a weight to draw people towards themselves. We could have positioned ourselves, Paul's saying, to get glory from you as apostles. Now you're saying, oh, wait a second. I thought the apostle Paul was the only apostle in the group of Timothy and Silas and him. They weren't all apostles, were they? Well, not in a big sense. We have the apostles of the Lamb. There are ultimately 12. Revelation. There's 11. Judas was the, was the son of perdition. And then one untimely born, the apostle Paul. But in the sense of the word apostle, it's used also in other places literally as sent ones. The big A sent ones from Jesus, the, the 12, obviously, and then, the, then Paul, 11 and 12. And then like a little A apostle, those who have been sent specifically for a specific purpose by the Lord. And Paul, Silas, and Timothy had been sent by the Lord directly to go to Macedonia and to preach the gospel. He says, we could have asserted the authority we had, the spiritual authority we had as sent once to get glory from you. We didn't do it. We didn't do it. And folks, the Apostle Paul didn't do ministry. He didn't share the word to gain man's approval. He didn't do so to uh, elevate himself to gain glory from men. We didn't do it. He's defending himself. And I can't tell you about the motives of men's hearts but when I see pastors, even some who preach the word uh, rightly, and they plaster their names all over everything, and they use their position to gain elevation, it does disturb me, whether it's something they've done rightly or whatever it might be. I was looking at a website of a woman homeschool Bible teacher conference speaker who's become very popular. And she's not totally off, got some things that are off, but some of her Bible teaching is pretty solid. And within that, I went to her website and her website was her picture everywhere and her name everywhere. It's everywhere. Now, I don't know her heart, but that bothers me. It bothers me. The position that she has as a teacher, which is respect, is being used to bring forth her own self. Paul says, we never, ever did that. We didn't do it. Unbiblical ministries and ministers seek financial gain from the flock and steal the glory from God or both. Or both. Yet Paul and his companions knew that they were approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so they spoke not as pleasing men, but God examines their hearts. That's what they didn't do. But notice, they're going to talk about their godly example of from good motives now. Look in verse 7. But in contrast to the wickedness we didn't do, we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. 
because you had become very dear to us. Here the Apostle Paul begins to remind the Thessalonians, in contrast to what they didn't do, what they actually did do when they imparted the word of God. They also imparted their lives. He says, verse 7, but we proved to be gentle among you. What does that mean? We're going to see illustrations here. Part of it we'll see next week. But they were just like uh, a loving family that cared for their children, whether it's a mother or a father, a mother tenderly caring or a father graciously exhorting, as we'll see in verses 10 through 12. But in contrast to flattery and exerting authority, greedily robbing the sheep of their money in God's glory, in contrast to that, we didn't do that, but we proved. Now, that you could translate it literally. We became gentle among you. The idea is of demonstrating gentleness. It came forth. That's why it's translated proved. The term gentle here really carries the idea of kindness. Of kindness. We'll see gentleness can also come in the context of exhortation, by the way. We'll see later on in uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he reminds them of what they were saying back when they were with them. Hey, if anyone doesn't work, he doesn't eat. That's, that's still, he was still gentle in that. They were still gentle in the exhortations. It speaks of kindness. It's used in the 2 Timothy 2.24 to speak of the Lord's bondservant as is not quarrelsome, patient, with all kind, right? Kind, same word. It's used to speak of the kindness of parents towards children. Towards children. We proved to be gentle or kind among you. We proved it. We didn't throw our weight around as apostles seeking glory from you, but we were kind. We were kind. We were kind. And notice he illustrates metaphorically as, middle of verse 7 or end of it, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. These are interesting analogies, by the way, because he's talking about how he imparted the word and he imparted his life. You see, the word tenderly cares or cherishes means to literally impart warmth. It's, think about the illustration. It's, it's quite amazing. You have with a nursing mother imparting the food that the infant needs, also along with her life and her tender care and warmth. It's a wonderful illustration. Indeed, Paul gave these Thessalonians the pure milk of the word, as Peter would say it. And he tenderly imparted his life, his very soul, as we will say. Now notice the structure of verse 8. He says, thus, thus, in light of our tender care like a nursing mother, in light of that, thus, having continually, habitually, thus, a fond affection for you, and we'll come back to that in a minute, Notice what he says. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. You saw it, Thessalonians. We did it. This is what we did. The one, uh, one um, lexicon speaking of this word impart uh, speaks of the fact of giving something which in which the giver retains part of it, of what the receiver receives. They share in the matter. Imparting something that you have that you now share with them. It speaks of transferring something to one another. When he says, we were well pleased, well pleased. The term well pleased here is an interesting word. It speaks of taking pleasure or being delighted in something. We were delighted... We were delighted to not only impart the word of God to you, 
but to give our very souls. The word lives here speaks of souls, suke, our very lives. We gave ourselves to you, and we were delighted to do so. You saw it, Thessalonians. Not only did they give the word of God, some people only give their lives, who should be giving the word also, by the way. Now, some giftings we do just give our lives in that sense in everything we do. But here, for Paul, as one that's entrusted with the word of God, they not only gave the word of God, they were delighted to give of themselves. That's the right motive. They were delighted. And then we're going to see in a moment the last verse for today after this, an expansion of this, what it meant to give their lives, their very souls. Let me read this here, verses 7 and 8. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, that's the saving truth of Jesus Christ, his word manifest, uh, revealing him, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. Having a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to do this. The term fond affection speaks of a strong feeling intensified by an inner attachment. And then he says, in the end of that verse 8, he says, because you had become very dear, or agape toy, you had become beloved. You had become beloved. So we were delighted to share the word of God in our lives with you. That's the right motive. That's the way ministry should be, folks. He had a strong affection for them, Beloved, they had become beloved. And now some of you are saying, okay, that sounds great and I understand that, but how did they become so beloved and have such a strong affection only being with them three weeks? You go, hmm, right? Well, you see, when someone's a true believer in Jesus Christ, we enter into a love relationship with other believers, and that love is an evidence of truly coming to faith. Remember the Apostle Paul talked about their work of faith and labor of love? Chapter 4, verse 9, he says, Now to the love of the brethren, you have no need of anyone to, to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Folks, if you're walking in the Spirit, and uh, the Lord gives you the privilege of sharing the gospel, and they respond, and they become true believers, there, and there becomes a, an affection for those who have come to faith. And the Apostle Paul had a fond affection for them. You see, when you share the word of God and God, they come to faith, God genuinely gives you a delight and affection for those believers who receive the word of God. And this happens with genuine, true believers. There was no doubt to their salvation. Think about it. Have you ever met a true believer somewhere else while traveling? You've never met them in your life. You're walking in the spirit. They are too. And you have an instant unity. And you're like, wow, this is amazing. You understand that? They loved them. They had a great affection for them because they were truly the Lord's. Truly the Lord's. And so they genuinely gave forth the word of God, not to please men, but God. They were approved uh, with a stewardship of the word, motivated by a fond affection and a genuine love that God gave them for each other. A genuine love God gave them for each other. Now, some people have left their first love. That's the Lord and his people. You need to go back. Stuff got in the way. Sinful situations, whatever it might be, get back to loving your brothers and sisters by being obedient to the Lord, as Paul was. He imparted the word and he imparted his life.
You see, our lives should be a manifestation of relationship with Jesus. He loved his people. He loves his people. We should love him too. So then, this wasn't a generic discipleship class or a book on how to go around the baseball diamond and how to do ministry. It's talking about the real motives of how Paul brought forth the word of God. They gave of themselves. They gave of themselves. Philippians 2, let each one of you regard one another as more important than yourself. Have the attitude that Christ Jesus had, right? He was obedient to the point of death. He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. It was genuine love. And to impart your life takes time. It takes energy. So as we finish, notice he's going to explain how they imparted their life along with the word of God, the context. Look at verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. He's going to explain later on in verse 10 how, how, how they came in a, in, a, in a godly manner. But here's one element of how he imparted his life while imparting the word. For you recall, think about it, Thessalonians, brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, you remember what? Our labor and hardship... Labor speaks of exhaustive physical, mental exertion. Hardship speaks of difficult struggle, labor that brings hardship. How working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, that's love, by the way, and discernment also, by the way, because there were times, as we will see, where Paul did take support from them, and sometimes he didn't do that. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. That's always underlying there. When they imparted their lives, the gospel was always going out too, folks. It's always both. So how did they work hard? Certainly proclaiming the gospel of God. But along with that, they had a love for them, and they actually worked so to not be burdensome to them. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. The apostle Paul did so because he loved them, but also to set an example, a godly example. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Now we command you, verse 6, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you keep aloof from every brother. That means to stay away from, by the way. Every brother who leads an unruly life, that's life out of step, uh, not according to the tradition which you receive from us. He's going to explain for you. He's going to explain about, remember how we came. This is what he's talking about back in our passage. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. Because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship. See that? That's what we saw in our passage. We kept working night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you. He says, not because we do not have the right to do this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you that you might follow our example. They were very sensitive to the issue of work with these Thessalonians, so they worked to show as an example right away. Obviously, they did have an issue with it later on, as we see here. They love them, not to be a burden. And he goes on to say, for while we were with you, we used to give this order. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. And he goes on, right? Stay away from him, but don't still love him as a brother. But don't dissociate until he, he listens to the word of God and does what's right. So then, out of love, uh, the apostle Paul and his companions worked when they brought the word of God. 
Now, some people have used this passage to say this is the absolute passage that says there's no paid ministry in Scripture. That you must not, you must also work, you must be a tent maker and a pastor's knowing you do that. Well, I'm not have time to go into that, that's not the truth. But uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I want to briefly want to look at this for a second, and then we'll get back to our passage. You see, Paul did it out of love. You know, when you're concerned about being a burden to someone and you act upon that, that's love, by the way. That's love. And that takes discernment based on the circumstances and situation. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, and I'm, I, there's so much to read here, but I'm just going to read a couple portions here. Or do Barnabas and I not, not have the right to refrain from working? He says, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of the fruit of it? Or tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking of these, I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake, as it, it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of the sharing of the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we should reap material things from you? If others shared the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, did we use this right? Did, did We did not use this right, but we endure all things, that we may not cause we may cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple and those who attend regularly to the altar have a share in the altar? So then the Lord has declared to declared those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. That's what he's declared, but Paul loved people. It wasn't just cut and dry in a sense. He didn't want to be a burden on this new church that evidently had an issue with working, as we see in chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians. And so they worked night and day. You're witnesses of how we came before you, Thessalonians. You are witnesses. For you recall, our brethren, our labor, our hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to you. To impart your life takes time. It takes your energy you take your very life to others. Are you willing to do so? You see, if you keep your life, you're going to lose it. If you keep your life, you're going to lose it. If you give it up for Christ's sake, you're going to gain it. You see? And if you keep it, you're going to suffer. Trust the Lord and impart yourself to what he has called you to do. And that is, as we see here, to serve one another. If it's not a teaching gift, a serving gift, whatever it is, Give yourself over to the Lord and impart yourself willingly, delightfully to serve the Lord in serving one another, to love one another. So what about uh, ministry? We see that the Apostle Paul openly gave their lives, their time, their effort, their very souls because they loved the Thessalonians. You see, if you have a love for the body of Christ and it's greater than your self-love, you're going to serve the Lord in serving one another. So then we have seen what genuine ministry is. Genuine ministry is imparting the word of God from the right motives. 
But along with that, there's an impartation of one's life from the right motives. We've seen the negative examples. If you experience those, get away from that. If you are part of those, repent. And maybe you need to be saved if that's truly what your motivation is. Biblical ministry is not motivated by the desire to please men but God. Within a stewardship of the word of God, and it is motivated by a fond affection for those in whom you minister to. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Uh, It instructs us and convicts us, and it corrects us and teaches us, trains us, Lord. Help us to see rightly what biblical ministry is in the terms of the word, but also in terms of each person individually. Whatever the gifting, Lord God, I pray that we would not hold on to our lives, but that we would give them over to you, that we would be like your son, that we would consider others as more important than ourselves, that we would then obey you in relationship to one another, giving up our lives for others in obeying you. Lord, I thank you so much for your word and what it has revealed to us today concerning what you desire. Help us to obey. In Jesus' name, amen.